His name was Frank Black, a legendary forensic profiler and a devoted husband and father. He was a figure of hope and compassion, the visionary hero of one of television's most remarkable dramas. And though he faced terrible crimes and unspeakable horrors with an uncommon courage, his profound abilities evoked something deep within us all. The need for empathy and an instinctive awareness of the darkness that threatens to overcome it. His story is both deeply personal and utterly universal. It continues to inspire audiences around the world. In this anxious and conflicted era, we wait, we worry, and we look back to Frank Black in search of a way forward. I'm Clea Scott, and this is the legacy of Chris Carter's Millennium. Welcome to Fourth Horseman Press, a podcast from the independent publisher of the same name and in which we talk to our authors about our books, their craft, and much more besides. I'm Adam Chamberlain, your host and associate publisher at Fourth Horseman Press. And in this episode, we continue our series of interviews with several of the authors behind Back to Frank Black, which we released a little over a decade ago. Now, Back to Frank Black explores Millennium, a landmark television drama that ran for three seasons on the Fox network from 1996 to 1999. It was created by Chris Carter, best known for The X-Files, and it starred Lance Henriksen, Megan Gallagher, Brittany Tiplady, and Claire Scott. And once again, a huge thank you to Claire Scott for recording the fabulous introduction that you heard at the beginning of the podcast there. Now, for more on the background to Back to Frank Black, the book, check out episode two of this podcast. That's an interview with Joseph Madre, in which I talk at length about how the book came about. In this episode, though, we're discussing one of the key manifestations of evil in the series, and that is Lucy Butler, a name that strikes fear and maybe a little joy into the heart of every Millennium fan. There'll be more discussion about manifestations of evil in the series next week when our publisher, Brian A. Dixon, joins me and he turns the tables on me by asking a number of questions of me himself. But right now, here's that interview. Okay, so now we will focus in on one of the key representations of evil in Millennium. And to help us do that, we'd like to welcome back our first guest on the podcast, now our first recurring guest on the podcast. That's author Alexander Zeleny. So welcome back, Alex. Thanks for having me, Adam. It's great to be here. It's great to have you back and to talk about Millennium. So when we got to the end of our last conversation and we were wrapping up, we'd intended to touch upon Millennium when we were talking about your influences and so on, mm. right? And we realized at the end, with all the other things we talked about, we didn't touch on Millennium. That's right. So I remember saying then that don't worry, because there's going to be another chance shortly to, to address that. And that chance is right now. So how about you start out by telling us how you found Millennium, what appealed to you about it, anything you'd like to say about Millennium that you didn't get the chance to last time. I mean, I, I think as with many people, it was through Millennium's Big Brother series, The X-Files, that I, I came to Millennium, which is kind of ironic because when I first heard about this, this new series, I was somewhat ambivalent because I thought, well, there's no way that I, this new series could possibly top what I'd seen so far in The X-Files because I was such a huge fan of The X-Files. But then I saw the pilot episode of Millennium and 
you know, I, I knew immediately that though the two series obviously shared certain elements, that Millennium was its own unique and vi- just amazing vision. There's no looking back after that first episode. I was I was hooked. Excellent. So what was it then about the series that really appealed to you then? Had you coming back for more? Where the X-Files spoke to me from so many different areas of, of lifelong personal interest, the, the different genres that they that they tackled and just ufology, conspiracy theories, all this great stuff. Millennium spoke to me in a, a deeper way, it seemed. It really felt like it was part of my, my DNA, you know, because it addressed certain ideas and certain fears that I'd had. Millennium completely enthralled me from the very beginning. To the point, I think I went beyond being just a TV series that I enjoyed on a regular basis, beyond being just an inspiration for my own creative endeavors. It was important to me because it validated a lot of fears that I'd had about the world. In a way, it was incredibly comforting to experience this series for the first time and subsequent times because I've rewatched it many times, which might sound strange to some people, obviously familiar with, with the very dark nature of the show. But for me, you know, the idea at the core of Millennium, of the character, Frank Black, doing everything in his power to keep his family safe and knowing what he knows about the world and, and the dark forces at, at work in it, that desire to carve out something good and safe in that world, that was a reflection of my own views of how to live in the world. So it was it was such a comfort to watch both these fictional characters inhabit this world, but also just knowing that other people saw the world the way I saw it, meaning the real life people behind Millennium, like Chris Carter, Frank Spotness, and all the other great writers that created this beautiful and terrifying world. That was a a huge factor for me. And I I think part of the connection, maybe to some degree, also came from growing up where I did. I I live in Windsor, Ontario, Canada, and uh, we're a border city. We have an American neighbor across the river, uh, which is Detroit, Michigan. And growing up as a kid in the 1980s, at that time, and it's changed, thankfully, for for the better in, in recent years. But at that time in the 80s, Detroit was notorious for its extremely high crime rates. And as a little kid, being constantly inundated uh, with these violent news stories and these terrifying images, because, you know, here in Windsor, we we watch just as much or more American news as Canadian news because we are a border city. It instilled this kind of a world fear or like a world wariness in me. It made me very cautious of being out in the world. It definitely made me want the world from what I was seeing to be less mean and less cruel. And so Millennium, when I saw that, when I saw Millennium, I realized that it really honed in on and validated those fears. And it made me comforted seeing these characters and and, and a series dealing with the dangers that are out in the world. It's sort of how I had this kind of close personal awareness of since childhood. So to say that Millennium means a lot to me would be a huge understatement. I have to say a lot, a lot of what you just said there resonates for, for me as uh, as well in terms of the reasons for feeling sort of draw, drawn into it. I, I think it's a great way of, of couching it that Millennium is comfort TV, folks. So you really? <laughs> knew it, but really? it is. It really is. <laughs> but, uh, but I think being more serious, Chris Carter would always said, well, there was always this bright light at the center of Millennium. Of course, it was about dark things that were sort of true to the world in, in uh, many ways. But you had Frank Black, you had the Yellow House. That's the bright center. Absolutely. Exactly as you're referencing there. So great way of thinking about the series. Maybe let's delve into your chapter then. Having talked about the bright center at the heart of Millennium, your chapter is titled Seeing Evil, Lucy Butler as Legion Through the Eyes of Frank Black. And I'll ask you why you wanted to write about the topic in a moment. But perhaps, first of all, we should actually pick that title apart and explain who is Legion, who are Legion, and who is Lucy Butler. You know, to my mind, the idea of Legion permeates the entire Millennium series. 
from the Bible, the idea of legion comes from a passage in Mark where Jesus encounters a man possessed by a group of demons that call themselves a legion because there are many of them within this body. And Millennium deals with the nature of evil and the idea that the evil confronting Frank Black and the Millennium Group is so pervasive and that it can be found any everywhere in so many different people, often hidden beneath an altogether different exterior that's presented to the world. I mean, that to me is where the two concepts meet most strongly. So whether we look at it as metaphor or as a more tangible force pulled directly from the, the pages of the Bible, it still equates to the same thing in the world of Millennium. It's, it's a world plagued by evil. Great way of, uh, of framing it. And then, and I shudder to say her name even to this day, but uh, <laughs> how about Lucy Butler herself then? Can you introduce her character? Lucy Butler is the antithesis to the hero of Millennium. Frank Black. She is his opposite, I would say, in, in every way. Where Frank Black is a devoted family man who, who cherishes his wife and his daughter. And as you mentioned, he, he lives in a house painted yellow in an effort to paint away the darkness in the world. As you said, I, I believe that's what Chris Carter, mm. how he described it. Lu, Lucy Butler is the opposite of that. She's nomadic. She's this kind of pervasive evil in the world at large. She appears and disappears throughout the series. She has no real ties other than these sort of transient ties to the men she seduces for her own purposes. And she has uh, this kind of perverse fixation on conceiving or, or stealing a child for herself, which comes after she may or may not have murdered her own child. And that's sort of like a, a dark reflection of Frank Black's genuinely loving relationship with his daughter, Jordan. I would say Lucy Butler is essentially the, the darkness to Frank Black's light. Very well put. And we'll delve a little bit into some of her appearances uh, in a moment. So what inspired you to want to write about Lucy Butler? Well, I mean, the most exciting thing about writing the essay in a way was I was always interested between the dynamic between the two characters, Lucy Butler and Frank Black. I mean, the, the idea behind the essay is that despite appearing in a total of only three episodes, and she has brief cameos in two other episodes. Lucy Butler always felt as though she was sort of an integral part of the series. And that and her relationship with Frank Black, how the, the sort of the back and forth between them really fascinated me. And I realized the reason behind the, the pervasive presence of her, even when she's not there, I think that it's because she is, in fact, in every episode of Millennium, because she is the embodiment of the evil that is the show's focus. She's the incarnation of this great evil, whether you call it Lucifer or whatever. She is that force. And therefore, she's embodied in, in every depiction of evil we see in the series. I think that was um, partly why I felt so compelled to write on this particular subject. Uh, Millennium is all about looking at the nature of evil. There's no character that exemplifies that more than Lucy Butler. As, as I said, she's the antithesis to the hero of, of Millennium, Frank Black. And so I, I felt that she deserved to be looked at through the lens of, of an academic essay. Not to mention some of the most memorable and powerful lines of dialogue, I think, come from her or, or revolve around her character. Stuff that never fails to give me goosebumps whenever I watch the episodes in question. And I've watched them so many times. <laughs> and I guess we should say all well, credit to Sarah Jane Redmond, who played oh, incredible. Uh, Lucy Butler as well, of course. And the power of those lines. And you're right, they really do stay with you. Oh, no, nobody else could have done that role like her. As with Lance Henriksen and Frank Black, I cannot imagine anybody doing what they did for those roles. It's just incredible. Yeah. And you're right, given her relatively scant screen time, if you look at the series as a whole, you say three episodes, she pops up a couple of other times. It, it feels like she's been in the series and you've seen her on screen a lot more than that, doesn't mm -hmm. it? Just Absolutely. Just so much impact. Really does. 
So maybe let's delve into the first one of those appearances. It comes two-thirds through the, the first season. It's a seminal episode. It's called Lamentation. And you write in, in the essay here about how her nature challenges what Frank Black thought he knew about evil to this point. So tell us a little bit about that and about, about this episode. I think, yeah, in, in Lamentation, we see a shift begin from how Frank Black sees Lucy Butler at the episode's beginning, when he sees her very much grounded in reality. I think he sees her as an endangered, misled person, a misled wife in need of protection from her husband, an inhumane husband, Ephraim Fabricant. He, he's a serial killer that Frank Black has dealt with before, and, and who Frank Black sees as a type of evil that he's encountered before, both with from Fabricant himself and, and elsewhere. So sadistic, but still explainable through the lens of behavioral science. But by the end of the episode, we see Frank Black's dawning recognition of Lucy Butler's true persona and powers, I think. He sees her as someone who's orchestrated an evil that's on a larger scale than even her serial killer husband, Fabricant, was capable of. There's that great line, Peter Watts, who he's referring to Fabricant, says to Frank Black, they say genius is the ability to hold two contradictory thoughts in your mind at once. What do you call someone who holds two contradictory personalities? And then when Frank Black answers the devil, it's almost as if they've laid out their very requirements for like a type of evil that if it does exist in any one person, it would validate the view of that person in supernatural terms almost. And here they're talking about Fabricant, not, not even Lucy Butler, who they later come to realize was even more sadistic than he was. So it's almost like the idea of Legion again, of these dual or multiple personas at work in the same person, one of which is absolute evil. Great summary. Thanks for that. I'm thinking about this episode now, and I, I was listening to some of the soundtrack earlier today, and even just the soundtrack from this episode just gives me chills. It's just oh, so it's imprinted in me. I know. I still remember first watching this episode for the first time and having such an impact on me. And I think there's that sort of such a great restraint in the first season of Millennium that we only get this episode that sort of goes to this level at this point, relatively late on in in that season. I agree. I feel it has that much more impact because Mm -hmm. of what's preceded it as well. Oh, um, I agree. Placement in the season. I agree. And and what happens to certain characters, the fates met by certain characters, it's very powerful. Very, very and unpredictable. That's, as you said, yes. it's something you're not necessarily expecting. It's, I remember watching the first season and thinking, like, wow, this is, it's relentless. It has this kind of relentless quality to it that it's, it's this, you know, these, this small group of people who, who are good dealing with this kind of relentless evil. And then you think it can't get any more profound, but it does. It's incredible. And one of the things that gets revealed about Lucy Butler in this episode is these shape-shifting properties mm-hmm. that she has. That's right. What do you make of those? Yeah, Lucy Butler's shape-shifting abilities. I think that's another clue as to, to who and what she she really is. She's clearly far more than she may appear at first glance. You know, historical depictions of Satan often show him as as a shapeshifter, a being that has the ability to assume the appearance of different people, wild animals. Even even here in in Millennium, we we see images of serpents and dogs that are closely associated with, with Lucy Butler's manifestations, especially in the third season episode, Antipas. In fact, I think there's one scene where Agent Emma Hollis sees, she encounters Lucy Butler and she witnesses her change into a dog, which then attacks her. So, you know, throughout the series, we see Lucy Butler as a woman, as a man, as a demon, and as various animals. So I think that all points to a, a supernatural demonic quality. Yes, indeed, doesn't it? You touch upon Jewish mythology as as well, the Lilith demon, mm-hmm. which is great, the detail and depth you go into in, in the essay and in, in, uh, some of this mythological stuff. Can you talk a little bit about that and why that resonates for you? 
Yeah, Lilith was traditionally depicted as a, a seductress in, in different texts. Uh, the oldest story of which Lilith is depicted as being Adam's first wife before Eve. Basically, she's she's a female demon that is the embodiment of lust who leads all men astray, in this case, Adam. And another common characteristic from the Jewish texts shows Lilith being a child-murdering demon. So both of these qualities we see in Lucy Butler. We learn that she was tried for the murder of her own child, though found innocent of, but nonetheless, you know, there's, there's always kind of an ambiguity there. And um, we later see her trying to, in the episode Antipas, destroy the Saxon family when she tries to seduce the husband of the family and make their daughter, Divina, her own her own child, which would have destroyed their family. Also in Greco-Roman mythology, we see other connections between Lilith and and Lucy Butler. In that mythology, uh, the demon was known also as Delamia, also referred to as the child killer. The story goes that the goddess Hera had cursed Delamia to have only stillborn children, which was an act of vengeance because Delamia had slept with Hera's husband, Zeus. And there's a variation of the myth that says their revenge took a different form, that Delamia's children were all murdered by Hera. And this the demon with, with such grief and torment that she was transformed into this vengeful monster that would devour the children of others. So there's all those elements, and also the demon was consumed with an insatiable sexual appetite, and it seduced and murdered men. So we clearly see these roles in Lucy Butler of, of seductress and murderess, often in the, in the same scene. You know, we, we see that very clearly in Antipas and in A Room With No View. The connections seem very clear to this a, a succubus-like aspect to her character. They do indeed. And I guess it it also points to how deeply and thoughtfully these myths were drawn upon for mm-hmm. millennium, you know, not just in the character of Lucy Butler, but very much so in the character of Lucy Butler. Oh, absolutely. So if we jump forward to season two, you talk about Lucy Butler's appearance there. So it's the episode of Room With No View as offering the definitive depiction of her vicious immorality. In A Room With No View, Lucy Butler appears as she's she's living in a remote farmhouse, which we learn doubles as a prison, essentially, uh, for a group of troubled teenagers that she's abducted, troubled teenage boys. And we see that she's basically turned them into these automaton-like slaves, something she's achieved, obviously, both by imprisoning them, but also by accepting, as she says, their ordinariness, claiming that she alone in the world loves them and understands them. We see her use her sexuality combined with this constant threat of violence to get what she wants from her victims, which again draws parallels with the demonic Lilith uh, mythologies. So this idea that Lucy Butler is telling her prisoners over and over that they're ordinary, that she's convinced them that there's, I think the quote is, a beauty and a need to be ordinary. It shows that she sees herself as being above them all, this kind of godlike being ruling over them. So I think it's here that we see how completely heartless and ruthless she can be. This whole scenario, it's its like this act of prolonged and twisted selfishness. She's essentially abducting people and erasing their personalities in this way, creating mindless slaves to her will. It's one of the most powerful examples of viciousness and immorality in, in the entire series. It's almost as if she's gathering disciples to her who will obey her without question because they no longer have any personal traits of their own because they've given themselves over to her completely, which is what she wants from all her victims. 
Yeah, it's an idea of sort of evil killing spirit and in opposition to life and and and, and so on. Mm-hmm. And it's it's, a, it's a, another great episode. Reflect on the ending of this episode as well, where Peter Watts and Frank Black are in conversation, right? And Watts asks Frank, you know, well, where do we start to look for it? And Frank just responds, everywhere. Yeah, it's which, so good. It's <laughs> so really, good. Which, <laughs> it's such a great moment and a great response. I'd really speak to I what know. you've been talking about. Lucy Butler is pervasive. She's everywhere in the series, yeah, right? Yeah, as we were talking about earlier, Frank Black's growing acceptance of that you know he it seems like the more he sees her the more he encounters her and what she is he he understands her true nature a little bit more all the time yeah absolutely so then her her third feature appearance is in season three's antipas which was written by chris carter and frank spotnitz and significantly and um here she's one of the things she's intent on as well as destroying the family and claiming this child as you've you've been talking about is it's actually a union with frank and even to bear his child right so what do you make of the themes and perhaps the significance of her appearance in this episode. I think this is probably the most important appearance of Lucy Butler because it's here that we see her relationship with Frank Black reach a point where she makes clear what it is she wants from him, right? As, as you said, we see that she now sees Frank Black, I would say, as something like her equal the good to her evil because she she makes the offer to him as you said that they could rule the world together it's almost as if she understands at this point that to win over frank black would be her ultimate victory because she would have corrupted a genuine force of good her complete opposite so with him at her side nothing else could conceivably stand in her way and her desire to conceive a child, yeah, as you said, it takes a very dark turn when she appears to Frank Black during this very surreal, dreamlike vision and essentially rapes him. It, yep. It's a scene that's, again, it's a clear parallel to the succubus myth where mm. female demons appear to men and seduce them and ultimately feed on their male lovers. In this case, Frank Black manages to narrowly escape that fate. You know, if, if not for Emma Hollis barging into that motel room, Millennium Season 3 might have ended prematurely. But, uh, <laughs> But uh, it's, uh, and there's also that that great line in this episode. It's oh, I love it. It's from the character John Saxon. It's that scene where he's defending Lucy Butler to his wife because his wife sort of at this point she understands that Lucy Butler may have designs for her husband, and um, John Saxon is defending her as being this this great caregiver for their child. And he refers to Lucy Butler as a gift from heaven, which conjures images of her as a fallen angel cast out from heaven. I just love stuff like that because Millennium is just filled with these amazing references. There's so much depth to the writing. It's just incredible. Yes, absolutely. And this episode as well, when we think about it, there's precious little screen time that Frank Black and Lucy Butler actually get together, right? Face Mm -hmm, to face. But the moments in this episode when they're together are just absolutely electric, right? Right to the last scene. The last scene is like one of the most you know, memorable and powerful scenes in Millennium. It never fails to give me goosebumps. The delivery of the lines, the dialogue, everything. It's just so, so good. And uh, I think you're right to call out the importance of this episode. Sometimes season three and, and episodes, including episodes such as this, get lesser thought of than, than the earlier seasons and appearances. But all mm-hmm. three of the sort of featured episodes that we talked about here, I think, are all standout episodes in, in the series. I agree. Run. Oh, I agree. So any, any Millennium fans who haven't recently watched season three, go back and make sure you watch Antipas again, because it's fabulous. It is, truly. So in terms of what Millennium still means to you today, how, how do you feel about Millennium now? Today, Millennium means so much to me. Then it was a series that was far ahead of its time, that touched on ideas that they resonate still. And they're far more relevant than ever today. I think it deserved a longer life than it got, as is often the way with groundbreaking art TV series, art in general. It didn't work out that way. Although three seasons is, is a great run. 
but yeah, it's, it's a perpetual source of inspiration for me. To me, Millennium is one of those rare pieces of art that now that I know it exists, I, I can't imagine the world without it because the world needs Frank Black, truly. Very well said. I always want to, I want to applaud. That's <laughs> been not the first time in this podcast I've wanted to applaud when someone's <laughs> answered that, that question. So thank you for that. Well, thanks for coming back and talking to us today. Thank you for this chapter. would certainly want to point anyone to the book over the, as a returning reader over the first time. Please do delve into this chapter to understand a little more. We can never understand everything about Lucy Butler, but understand a little bit more <laughs> about the character of uh, Lucy Butler. It's a great piece of work that really gives us some insight into uh, her character. So what projects do you have going on currently or coming up that you would like to talk about? I've got a new book coming out next year from Ibanevale Press. It's a collection of cross-genre stories. The book's called Oppenheimer's Doors. I'm sort of polishing that up right now. Also currently polishing up a draft of a novel. I've been working on it for quite some time. Beyond the book projects, I've got some stories coming out next year in a few different magazines, including a story in Canada's oldest French-speaking, French-language science fiction fantasy magazine called Solaris. So I'm very excited about that. Excellent. And that's about it. Thank you for sharing that. And, and then where can people find you online? I have a website, which is alexanderzeleny.com. For those of you who don't know how my last name is spelled, tricks everybody. It's Z-E-L-E-N-Y-J. So alexanderzeleny.com. I'm on most of the, the usual social media outlets as well. Facebook, just under my name. I'm on Twitter. Twitter handle is at A-Zeleny. And I'm on Instagram at DeathRayZeleny. Right. Well, people, please do go and explore Alex's work in more detail because there's a wealth of fabulous literature out there to be explored if you're not familiar with it. Thank you. Well, thank you for coming back and speaking to us again. I'm sure it won't be the last time you're on this podcast. Hey, you may even be on the next episode at this rate. <laughs> I, I hope so. I, I'm honored. <laughs> always great to be on with you, Adam. And talking about Millennium, it's always a pleasure. Always. Well, thank you again. And until next time. Till next time. Take care. And thank you once again to Alexander Zeleny for returning to the podcast. Now, in addition to those forthcoming books that he talked about, you can still pick up a copy of These Long Teeth of the Night. And indeed, that's available now in both paperback and hardcover. And if you wanted to hear more from Alex, check out the very first episode of this podcast in which I talked to him about that anthology. You can find out more about Back to Frank Black, including how to pick up a copy on our website at fourthhorsemanpress.com. All proceeds from sales of the book still go to Children of the Night. Night, a US-based non-profit chosen by Lance Henriksen and which intervenes in and rehabilitates the lives of children who have suffered from sexual exploitation. As well as the website, you can find us on Twitter at Fourth Horse Press. That's with the number four. And we're also on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, please do subscribe and please rate and review us to enable others to find us too. Now, for more Millennium-related discussion, there are a few podcasts we'd like to recommend. The first of those is Millennium Group Sessions Redux. Now, that is a podcast that features a number of interviews conducted by the Back to Frank Black campaign that we actually reference throughout the book. And in those, you can hear from those interviewees firsthand, of course. Also, from the We Made this network, there's The Time Is Now, which takes a look at Millennium one episode at a time. And their sister podcast, The Xcast, recently interviewed Chris Carter, and he makes a number of references to Millennium throughout that interview. Again, all those links and more to be found in the show notes. I'll be back very soon with a very special interview with none other than our publisher, Brian A. Dixon, in which we talk about each of our own chapters for Back to Frank Black and also reflect on this entire 
series of interviews that we've been releasing in recent weeks. In the meantime, please do keep reading, keep writing, get your Millennium DVDs back in the player or track down a copy and start looking for Lucy Butler everywhere.